right, so good morning again. Uh, we are, as we just mentioned, kicking off a new series on the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Uh, depending on your tra- translation that you have in front of you, uh, the Song of Songs is a. Whoop, we lost something there. Song of Songs is a <laughs> superlative in Hebrew, meaning the best or most beautiful of songs. So. This is the song of songs, like uh, the most lavish love song you're ever going to hear. So we're changing gears here, okay? We're, we're in Galatians for a couple weeks. Uh, we are now entering the domain of Hebrew love poetry. So it's going to be lots of fun, but you're going to have to do a little bit of rethinking. You're going to have to be uh, moving your mind into the world of poetry here. The full title uh, for our book is A Song of Songs That Is Solomon's, and scholars debate whether it was written by Solomon or whether it was a collection of poetry edited by Solomon or simply a uh, collection of poetry dedicated to Solomon as uh, one of Israel's famous uh, lovers. We don't need to make a decision on that to enjoy the poetry, but you can talk to me later if you're interested in his complicated relationship with the book. You can watch the Bible Project video I shared. I put together a Uh, 15-page little summary and overview of the book, which is out there. You can grab. I shared that on Slack um, because there's all kinds of crazy opinions on this book from the commentators. And if you don't have time to go through 12 or so commentaries and really just uh, live in the Hebrew poetry for the next couple of weeks, um, you can check out those overviews. Those will help you out, orient you a little bit. Uh, But what everyone does agree on is that the Song of Songs is Hebrew Poetry celebrating romantic love in the context of marriage. The opening lines of poetry capture this perfectly. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Clearly, we're dealing with two people here who are passionately in love. Um, and uh, we see immediately that we're entering into the world of uh, poetry. Uh, Leland Reichen said this um, to summarize the style of the book. He said, the style of the book is the most purely poetic thing in the Bible. It is one of the delights of the book, but most modern readers are scared off by the very abandonment of the poetic style. Is something this poetic really appropriate in the Bible? Yes, it is. (laughs) The right way to read the Song of Songs is to abandon oneself to the poetry. It is a poetry full of emotional and imaginative fireworks. But this is in keeping with the subject matter of the book. Not to abandon oneself to the poetry is to cut against the grain of the book here. So so we're entering into a very poetic world. If you try to read this as a narrative, if you try to read this as an epistle, if you try to read this as uh, one of the Gospels, you are going to be totally lost and totally confused. Uh, Reichen continues, he says, the book covers a whole range of romantic emotions, the rapture of falling in love, impatience for the love to progress to marriage, longing to be with the beloved, frustration, the frustration of separation between lovers, and above all, the voice of romantic passion satisfied in the matchless, my beloved is mine and I am his. And so we are in a series calling this an atlas for desire because it provides us with wisdom for navigating all the complexities of romantic desire, all of the 
agonies and ecstasies of romantic love. We're going to be tracking the train. We're going to be navigating uh, all of the emotional landscape that comes with the world of romance. Uh, Seems to be fitting. Uh, As spring is springing around us here, uh, we're going to get to talk about love poetry. The song opens without any introduction of the characters or pause to set the scene. So let me try and say a few words about the characters and setting before we dive in. The song centers around two lovers. The first is a charming country girl. Uh, She tells us in verses 5 through 6 that she has a darker complexion from working outside in the family uh, vineyard. And so um, not that she's a different race or something like that, but just simply she's been outside. She's been deeper uh, tan than her contemporaries, which in the ancient Near East considered that you were part of the low cl- lower class. You were part of the working class if you had to go outside and work in that hot uh, you know, sun in the, if you have been ever to Israel, and you know how hot it is out there in the sun. All the nobility would have been inside um, under their umbrellas, you know, staying away from the heat. Um, and so uh, she's coming from a lower class family. Uh, she doesn't mention her father, interestingly enough, in the description, verses 5 and 6, but only some angry brothers who make her work the family vineyard. So she kind of has this Cinderella-like story. She's from this poor family. She's got a complicated family of origins, and yet she's attracted uh, this, the love of this uh, lover in the psalm. But when it comes to love, she knows what she wants and has no difficulty taking the initiative and expressing her desires for her lover. She has the opening lines in uh, chapter one here and the closing lines of the song and is the primary speaker. Today we'd say she has the leading role in the song. Uh, One of the commentators noted that the song could very well be a companion poem to Proverbs 31 and the famous Proverbs 31 wife, who, you know, is an incredibly resourceful, entrepreneurial, industrious woman, uh, but doesn't seem to be particularly romantic, right? The song, you know, corrects that imbalance, if you will. So you have the wonderful Proverbs 31 woman, and then you have the woman in the songs who initiates, who knows what she wants, who's confident in her love. And so the song uh, is really uh, maybe interesting, maybe unexpected Mother's Day sermon there. You get to hear lots of, lots of sermons on the Proverbs 31 woman and how hardworking she is and wonderful, but boy, what a wonderful opportunity to look also at the, at the mother in the Song of Songs here. A very different, uh, different approach, unexpected perhaps, but I think will make for some great uh, Mother's Day uh, preaching here. Her lover, on the other hand, is described alternatively as a simple country shepherd and, and this is what confuses so many commentators, as an urbane and sophisticated king modeled after Israel's most famous king, King Solomon. Uh, This has created all kinds of confusion for the commentators. Is there one character, King Solomon, or are there two totally different people, a rustic shepherd and a famous king, uh, leading to the great love triangle hypothesis, uh, which, don't get confused by all that, we're not even going to go into it. Uh, But there are strong reasons for rejecting both these views, which, again, I can't get into this morning, but would love to discuss later if you're interested. Most modern commentators conclude that we're dealing with one lover, alternatively described in the language reminiscent of the countryside as a shepherd, uh, but also in the highly stylized language of royalty. So, so one character describes in two very different ways, not two people as far as we can tell. There are a few passing references also to Israel's most famous king, which we will address when we come to those texts. And finally, interspersed throughout 
the poetry or a chorus or a refrain from an unidentified group of people. In the SV, they're simply labeled others. In the CSB, they're the young women of Jerusalem. In the NIV, they're friends, village people, could be the king's harem, have all been suggestions. This chorus or refrain places this legendary love squarely in the context of community, which is beautiful and appropriate and important to understanding how this love plays itself out. Uh, the setting uh, quickly uh, provides the backdrop, not so much for a linear story, but for the complex emotions playing out between the lover and the beloved. So uh, interesting observation right from the beginning. So the poem opens with the lover telling her readers, the king has brought me into his chambers, or um, oh, that the king would bring me into his chambers, a reference to the royal palace in Jerusalem. But a mere three verses later, she's searching for him among the flocks out in the countryside as a simple shepherd. This perfectly illustrates the stream of consciousness style that characterizes the Song of Songs. Just when you think you have it figured out and you know where the story is going, you flash from one place to another, which is incredibly confusing if you think this is going to be a sequential narrative. But it's not. It's poetry. So the story flashes back and forth from different scenes, uh, from the future to the past. Um, it's all over the place. There are flashbacks, fantasies, reminiscences, dreams, all exploring the varied terrain of romantic love. And so uh, lots to see as we're getting a little bit of a, hopefully a little bit of a grounding as we step into this beautiful piece of Hebrew uh, love poetry. The final thing I want to say by way of introduction before we jump in is this love poetry is idealistic by design. The song celebrates romantic love in the most glowing terms. It is a return to the garden where Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed, Genesis 2, 25. It's no coincidence that garden language is used so extensively for all the lovers' uh, romps and rendezvous that we see throughout the book, right? They're, they're going back to the garden, as it were. All of the garden language and imagery and floral stuff that you see throughout the book is an attempt to bring us back to love in its innocence, in its original potency and power and beauty, They're experiencing the unbridled joy of knowing and being known as God designed it. Now, as we have to approach this, now we have to approach this unbridled celebration of love in the context of marriage delicately because we live in a fallen world, right? Sexual abuse, pornography, no commitment relationships, the sadness of unrequited love, divorce, and all the challenges to intimacy, even within the context of the best marriages, are realities that are here with us today, right? So when we see this idealistic vision for romantic marital love in the song, and we're confronted with our own frustrations, and you say, Pastor, why do you have to be going on and belaboring the beauties of romantic love in the midst when I'm just struggling in life right now? We shouldn't despair, but we get to confront, we get to commit those feelings to our Father in Heaven who designed romantic love, uh, and, and, uh, We have to recognize that our greatest romances, love at its heights, are only a dim reflection of God's passionate love for us this morning. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an introduction as we are changing gears here. I know it's a bit of a shock to go from Galatians to the song. So a little literary introduction for you, uh, a couple of uh, stage-setting expectations, and now I've got to actually get into the book itself, and I've got tons of material because... There's so much great stuff. I really love Hebrew poetry. It's one of my favorite uh, genres of the Bible to be in. And so we're going to be looking this morning at three 
signposts that help us navigate the varied terrain of romantic desire this morning. Um, we're, we're in an atlas for desire. So while we're looking at the map here, I have a few signposts that hopefully will direct us safely through this book. There are perils on either end if we get too much into the details of the intense sexual intimacy in the text or if we get lost in the clouds of the divine ethereal love here. Uh, I've got some signposts that hopefully will guide us safely through this book. Here are the three signposts that I think will help us as we enter the book. First, romantic longing points beyond itself. Uh, Romantic longing points beyond itself. Uh, Second, Uh, Marriage is the context for cultivating this kind of intimacy. And third, there is hope, healing, and redemption for all of the hurt, pain, shame, and brokenness surrounding sexual sin. So uh, my aim for this series is that we would learn how to navigate the complexities of romantic desire with all the passion and wisdom of God. And so let's pray as we dive into our text uh, this morning that God would meet us in this series and that we as a church would get some beautiful language for what it looks like to enjoy all the beauties, the heights, the intimacy, the agony, the ecstasies of love together. We'd get a vision for what biblical love looks like in its most potent form and uh, get the wisdom to navigate the complexities of all the emotions surrounding this very difficult and challenging topic of relationships. So Father, we need your help as we dive into this delicate subject of romantic love because we know that none of us has escaped unscathed from all the dangers and perils of love. There are wounds that we all carry and some still may be fresh this morning. And yet we know that this exploration of romantic desire gets at our deepest desires to be fully known and fully loved. Yet we know that human romance uh, can only take us so far. So as we explore these desires over the course of the next few weeks, would they lead us ultimately uh, deeper into the divine romance, into the ultimate love that you have for your bride, the church. And so we pray you'd come this morning, uh, that you would minister to your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now we get to actually dive into the text, and we're starting in signpost number one on our atlas for desire, romantic love or romantic longing points beyond itself. So as we're looking through this opening chapter, the theme that really captures it, the desire, the mood that we really see is longing, Uh, Longing is captured so poignantly and powerfully in this opening section of the song. We see this from the very opening lines where our heroine says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, all the way to the end of our section in chapter 2, verse 5, where she says that she is sick with love. Right? We have this longing traced out in intimate and beautiful detail. And I'm just going to give you the high-level uh, high-level overview of how that plays out in this opening section of the song. So let's start here in verses uh, 2 through 3. We we read, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins or the maidens love you. Our protagonist, the woman, is longing for him to kiss her with the kiss of her mouth. She takes the initiative. She is longing for his kisses, for his embraces. Uh, And I love it. She says the kisses of his mouth. And we say, what other kind of kisses are there? Well, apparently, 
Egyptians did uh, formal nose kisses, which is fascinating to learn. Uh, Not this woman. She's not settling for uh, nose kisses. She wants the deep kisses of the mouth. And so from the beginning, we see this is going to get intense really fast here. Uh, Not only does she want passionate kisses, she declares that his love is better than wine. Like wine, it makes her dizzy and lightheaded. When you get into in Hebrew, it's not talking about love in any kind of lofty, abstract sense, but it's love in a, a very verb, very physical sense of the word, the very fullest sense of what it looks like. She enjoys the smell of her man, his fragrance, his cologne. And so as we're reading the poetry, you're going to see all the senses are engaged Right, the sight and sound and smell and touch, all of those things are going to be on full display. She loves the smell. She even loves hearing the sound of his name. A sure sign that you're in love, right? Just hearing the sound of your lover's name, you're just like, just, just amazing, right? Just amazing. You know, you know you're in love. And notice the impatience we have here. I love this in verse four. Draw me away with you. Let's let's run away. <laughs> You know, and automatically, she, as all lovers want to do, they want to avoid. They want to be together. They want to be alone uh, together, experiencing all the beauties of love. And so in verse 4, it says, The king has brought me into his chambers. I think a better translation of that is in the CSB, Oh, that the king would bring me into his chambers. This is a description of longing and desire. I don't think it's, as the ESV translates, something that's happening uh, chronologically in the story. It's more of a desire. This is her longing. She wants to be together with the king. And then a whole chorus of friends affirm and encourage her love in verse 4, which is beautiful. This love is part of a community project. There's all these people that are involved, that are affirming, that are encouraging her on in the work. Right? You need community. You need people. If you're going to have a healthy relationship, you need support. You need encouragement. You need friends around you. This woman has all kinds of friends encouraging her, cheering you on. You can read all about it in verse 4. Uh, verse 5 through 6 explores some of the initial insecurities that she has. And who doesn't have insecurities when they're stepping into the wild world of love. Um, what will her lover think of her bronze complexion, right? She's been out in the sun all these days. We already mentioned in the introduction that being out in the sun meant that she was more low class, right? She was a working class woman. What were all these high class women of Jerusalem going to think of this country girl who's been out in the sun and tanned? Um, what, will, you know, what will they do? And actually, we never actually find out because uh, the verse in 7 immediately returns to the woman's longing. She's separated from her lover, who's now pictured as a simple shepherd, and she desperately wants to find him. She's even willing to risk the scorn and danger of wandering around the hills and valleys to find them. We see this in verses 6 through 7. She's like, where is my beloved? Where is he at? Where is he going to pasture his sheep? And she's like, I want to go running after him and chase him down. Uh, finally, in verse 8, we hear from her shepherd king lover, Uh, The guy finally chimes in and he compliments her on her beauty. He tells her where to find him. Then he launches into a series of wonderful ancient Near Eastern compliments, which are one of the great joys of reading the book of songs, right? I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Try that pickup line on on the ladies, man. It works every time. What can I I say? Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Uh, We have all these beautiful things, and you really need to pick up a good commentary to appreciate what's happening here, because this was was brilliant poetry in Hebrew. There's a whole 
collection of ancient Near Eastern poetry, not just Israelite, but Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, where, where they developed these elaborate metaphors and imagery to describe their lovers. And I don't have time to get into it all today. I got to enjoy having lots of fun reading about it in my study this week, but I can't give you all of the fun stuff, but I can point you to a few good commentaries. Verse 10 flashes from the flocks to her desire to be together. She imagines Solomon reclining at his couch or table for a meal when her perfume captures his attention so that he ends up reclining on her instead. It's a hot and steamy kind of scene. She imagines them together either with the forest as their palace or in a palace like a forest in verse 16 and 17. You can read and you can decide what poetic thing, what the, what's the poet doing? Is he capturing a picture of this forest rendezvous or is it a palace that's like a forest? Um, we're left to wonder because the poetry is beautiful and a little bit ambiguous. She's dreaming of banqueting together where he has eyes only for her, his love is over her like a banner in the famous line in chapter two, verse four, he's brought me into the banqueting house and his banner over me is love, right? We have these beautiful descriptions here of the love that they, (coughs) excuse me, have for each other. And then she concludes in verse five that she is sick with love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. If that doesn't capture longing, I don't know what does, right? From the opening lines of this um, section of the psalm here to the end, just as a sick with love. We just get this beautiful uh, kind of epitome here of what really love looks like in, in longing, right? We want someone so much, right, that it, that it makes you sick. And right, she further expresses this longing for intimacy more pointedly in verse 6 with even more desire for his embraces. The point of this opening section is that longing or romantic desire is such a powerful thing that it hits us right in the gut that we won't settle for anything less than the presence of the beloved. Nothing will satisfy like the presence of our lover, right? And that's the point. If the poetry is doing its work to express in poetic language the longing that this woman feels for her man. Have you ever been sick with love? Have you ever been there? Have you felt this longing for your lover? If you have ever been in love, right, you know what I'm talking about and the power of these feelings. But even in the best of relationships where that longing has been satisfied in the best of ways, there is still something lacking. This longing is a signpost to something even greater. Uh, The commentator Tom Gledhill said it like this. He said, beauty intimacy and consummation can never be ends in themselves. They can never ultimately satisfy. This is not to denigrate them, but rather to recognize them for what they are. They're pointers to another world, another dimension, only occasionally and very dimly perceived, always seemingly just out of reach around the corner. These transcendental longings Intimations of immortality are part and parcel of our complex physical, psychological, and spiritual natures. It is almost inevitable that a consideration of human love and sexuality provokes contemplation at levels other than plainly physical. Isn't that interesting? When we look at these longings, which are so beautifully and poetically offered for us here in the song, uh, they're pointers to something deeper. They're not ends in and of themselves. So if you're here this morning and you're not married or not in a relationship, 
Gledhill reminds us that love in the song points to something even deeper and more profound. You are not less than for being single. Jesus never experienced any of the romantic, any of the romance described in so poignantly in the song, and yet lived a full and complete life. And if you are married, then you already know that romantic love isn't the ultimate thing that our hearts are longing for. We are made for an even greater love, of which romantic love, even at its heights, is just a dim shadow. And so the first signpost in our atlas for desire is that longing, written large over this opening section, right, is just a pointer. It's just a signpost to something even greater. The second comes at the very end of this first section and serves as a refrain throughout the song in uh, chapter seven, 2, verse 7, in chapter 3, verse 5, and then chapter 8, verse 4. And this is kind of the, one of the great transition uh, refrains throughout the song. Uh, verse 7, I, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir or awaken love until it pleases Well, the psalm doesn't explicitly teach about the importance of marriage. Its cultural context, the song's content, along with the context of the rest of the Bible, reinforces the principle that the kind of love celebrated and enjoyed in the songs belongs within the trust and safety of marriage. So our second signpost in this Atlas for Desire is that the intimacy celebrated in the song is designed to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. That's the universal message of the Bible. Uh, We see that celebrated in the song itself, and that is the cultural context in which this chapter of the Bible would have been read and celebrated in its original Israelite context. And so our heroine is doing here in verse 7, in this important refrain, is solemnly charging the young women who are her friends' companions not to awaken love prematurely. Like this warning is given not because love is dirty or demeaning, but because love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It requires special attention and care. As the uh, uh, famously in the book of Proverbs, right, the young man is addressed over and over again about the warnings about love in Outside of the right context, the Song of Songs is in some ways a book for young women, warning them right about not awakening love prematurely, not awakening love before its time. And the classic illustration for the power of love is fire, right? The author uh, of the songs uses it at the conclusion of the book as he is wrapping up his case. He says in um, Song of Song 8, 6 through 7, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. Uh, When it's properly contained, fire can be a source of warmth, comfort, safety, and pleasure, right? Think of all the wonderful fires you had in your house this winter as we were trapped inside for the last eight months or whatever here in West Michigan. Think about the wonderful bonfires that we enjoy hanging out with each other. Uh, Think about your furnace and all the wonderful heat that it kicks out. Fire is a beautiful and wonderful thing, but when it's burning out of control, out of the fireplace, it can burn the house down. That's the warning here in Verse 7, love is powerful. Love is an incredibly powerful force. Be careful how you steward it. So verse 7 captures the power of love for both ecstasy and, tra- and, uh, and tragedy. Uh, Tremper Longman, the commentator, explains it this way. He says, the verse is a warning of the woman to other women who may look on the relationship and want to experience something similar. 
She's in essence telling them not to force it. Wait for love to blossom. Don't hurry it. In a sense then, the daughters of Jerusalem are surrogates to the readers. We too are to learn the same lesson. Wait for love to blossom. Don't try to stimulate it artificially. After all, in the preceding verses, we have seen that love takes its toll on the woman. She warns the others not to arouse love until they are ready to meet its rigors, both physical and emotional. Love is not a passing fling, but rather a demanding and exhausting relationship, right? So we're duly warned, right? That all the ecstasies of marriage, all the joys of marriage are wonderful and they're beautiful within the safety and context that it is designed. But watch out, right? It's quite dangerous to awaken that love outside of that context of safety and trust. Uh, Naked and unashamed, as the author of Genesis tells us, is not something that comes naturally to us this side of the garden. So to experience the fireworks that God has designed for romance requires the safety, trust, and time that marriage offers. I always tell newlyweds in premarital counseling that it will take years to develop the kind of intimacy that they are so excited to dive into as newly married uh, couple. Right? Marriage is designed to reflect a deeper reality, oneness at a physical, emotional social, relational, economic, and spiritual level. This takes time and trust and safety and lots of work. And of course, is totally worth it because the fireworks are pretty amazing, right? In marriage, the fire can burn very bright as the song shows, but in such a way that neither spouse is burned by it. Of course, Satan would like to have it the opposite way, right? We know this. Lots of unmarried people having lots of sex with lots of people and lots of people getting hurt, right? That's the kind of the diabolical wisdom of Satan. Or for married people, not to be having any sex and being miserable, right? What a terrible, uh, what a terrible place to be, right? What a terrible world to be living in. Either of these would, sit, would suit Satan's ends absolutely perfectly, which leads to my final signpost for this morning in our atlas of desire, and that is that there is hope, healing, and redemption for all the hurt, pain, shame, and brokenness surrounding sexual sin. As a pastor, I can't preach on the glories and agonies of romantic love without holding out the hope of the gospel, right? There is so much hurt and pain and brokenness surrounding sexual sin that it would be pastoral malpractice, not to mention the hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus came to minister to sexually broken people, right? We see this in his tenderness with a woman caught in the act of adultery. We see this in his compassion for the Samaritan woman who has been with five husbands and is living with a man to whom she's not married, right? We see this in his forgiveness extended to the notorious woman of the city. Jesus met people in the midst of their sin and brokenness and all of the drama that they've experienced. But most of all, we see Jesus' love expressed for all of us on the cross where he gave his life for our sins to remove our guilt, to cleanse us of our shame, and to make us new people with a new hope for relationships. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, I mean, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might be holy, she might be holy and without blemish. God designed marriage ultimately to point us to Christ's love for his bride, the church, right? All of the beauties of marriage, all of the love songs that have ever been told are all just pointers to the ultimate love that God has for his people. Uh, Tim Chester sums this up well. He says, 
God invented marriage, romance, and sex to show us just how much he loves us. So what would it look like to join in the song this week, to be a part of the song in our own lives, the way we live this out together? Well, first, for married people, the song presents an invitation to married love at its most passionate and intimate, to know and be known at that deepest level. If you've let the fire die down, there is no time like the present to rekindle it. And there's no shortage of inspiration in the songs. It might take some real creativity depending on your season of life, but you need to do it. You need to invest in the romance of your marriage. That's what the song is all about. It's a beautiful compliment to Proverbs 31, which is busy with children and clothes and chores and all of the uh, businesses and side hustles. Um, but it misses the romance. And uh, the song, again, as we've said already, corrects that imbalance slightly. And there are all manner of ways to show and express love on display in the song, starting with so many poetic words of affirmation and admiration. If you are at a loss, start there. Start with words of affirmation. If you're like, our love life is just stalled at this point too. The the love has died. There's just a few sparks showing here. The the flame is not burning. Probably start with words of affirmation. The, The song is just filled with beautiful expressions of it. And maybe the stretch goal is to write a little love poetry and leave it for your your spouse or something. Start with words of affirmation. Amazing how far that goes in the process of beginning to rekindle love, beginning to see your spouse the way uh, maybe you saw them that very first time or that very first time when they walked down the aisle and all you could think of was like, how on earth did I end up this lucky of a person? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, think about ways you might be able to do that. Second, if you are single, <clears throat> what on earth are you supposed to do with a sermon like this? Oh, my gosh. It's terrible, right? The Song of Songs, first and foremost, cast a vision for marriage and all of its glories and agonies. So, so don't get jaded about the prospect of marriage. I know there's a temptation to be like, oh, my gosh, these churches and pastors and talk about the perfect marriage and all that stuff. The vision's there for a reason. The ideal is there for a reason. So don't sell yourself short. You know, don't get jaded. Don't get bitter. Um, you know, keep the vision before your mind. Hold it loosely. Uh, but the vision is a vision. The ideal is an ideal for a reason. And don't settle for anything less than God's very good design. Right? There are lots of shortcuts to sexual fulfillment outside of marriage, and they are readily available. Uh, and the song just offers an invitation to another way, another opportunity. Uh, The second thing I would say if you're single, and this is probably the most important, be in community. You are going to need friends, right? The heroine of our poem certainly had a strong network supporting, encouraging her, cheering her on, walking alongside of her through all the the challenges and drama of being single, right? You weren't made to be alone either. Um, And if you're married, again, that doesn't mean you're less than. It just means you need people. You were designed for a community. You were designed for relationships. You need people around you. And if you've already settled for less than God's good design, there is no time like the present to return to the ideal of marital love. And there is always loads of grace, mountains of grace for those who have struggled in this area and tons of people in this church who love to come alongside and support you in that struggle, in the work that we have there. Finally, the song points all of us, married or unmarried, to the ultimate source of love in the universe. It points us to the divine romance. And my hope and prayer for this series is that we would, it would make you long for the lover of your souls who rejoices over you 
with loud singing, that as we land the plane this morning, you wouldn't simply be thinking of romance as it jumps off the page and the longings of romantic love, uh, but that those longings would take you deeper. They would take you higher into uh, reflection and love that God has uh, for us, which sets up beautifully our time around the Lord's table where we're reflecting on God's incredible love uh, for us. And so uh, let me pray as we're closing this morning that God would minister to us um, around this uh, space, that this would open conversations here in our congregation about issues that are sometimes taboo in church, sometimes issues we don't talk about, that this would be a, a forum to have conversations about all the difficulties, challenges of love, and that we'd be able to have these conversations in ways that would lead to flourishing, that would lead to growth, that would lead to deeper levels of knowing and being known, and ultimately a deeper knowledge of the great love God has for us. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the song. We thank you that the Bible doesn't shy away uh, from issues of romance, uh, sexuality, uh, but that it talks about those things. It gives uh, not a weak vision, but a powerful vision for what romantic love is like at its best, at its most free. Um, And so I pray increasingly uh, that for those of us in that position of being married, God, that our marriages would reflect the ideal more and more, that you would be growing us and maturing us so that uh, we could more and more reflect that ideal. Uh, I pray that as a community, we would grow more deeply into the love that you have for us, that we would be a source of support for each other and encouragement, a family uh, together. And that this series would just take us deeper, God, in to the love. You created romance, you created love, you created marriage, you created sex uh, to show us how much you love us, God. Would that come home to us in new and fresh ways throughout this series? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. I'm going to step on down. <clears throat>